If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 137, and we're interviewing Tim L. How are you doing today, Tim? Doing great, Jim. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you having me on to be able to share my story with everybody. No, I'm happy to do. We were just having a bit of a conversation, and you're, uh, from what I found out, a professional podcaster. I was kidding around saying. <laughs> yeah, no, I, this is my 47th one uh, within this year. So, and I've got four more this month. I already got three booked for next month. And um, it's just extremely important to get our stories out there because one more person that we can help is one less person that could ultimately lose their life to suicide, mental health, or addiction. Yeah, I heard a great saying that I like is that we recover out uh, loud so people don't have to die in silence. Love it. Love it. I saw that. I remember that. It was a great saying. But yeah, let's let's get going here. Tell me about your childhood growing up. Yeah, so I mean, it was a pretty normal childhood. My, My father was a police officer. Um, he was a police officer my entire life. He retired after 37 years. Um, my mother actually was a professional bodybuilder when I grew up. Really? Um, yeah. And my uncle was a three-time Mr. Universe winner. Um, my cousin was, I live in Maryland. So my cousin was Mr. Maryland for a couple of years. So I grew up around fitness and, and bodybuilding my whole life. Um, now at the age of seven, my mother and father did get a divorce. And my father was pretty much out of the picture um, when I was in first grade. And I remember thinking it was my fault. I I remember asking, why did my dad leave when I'm so young? And I have a brother who's 10 years older than me. So I'd always be like, why did he leave me when I was seven? And my brother's 17. Like, what did I do to make him leave? And I held on to that all the way up until my forties. Like I, I use that as a reason to drink and drug because I would tell myself my father didn't love me. I was the reason my parents got a divorce. He was the reason he left. Why didn't he show me attention? Why, why didn't he come around and spend time with me? Um, you know, my father, that must've been really it, hard. It was. And, and I, I thought it was all me. I really did. I was like, you know, what did I do wrong? I'm a, I'm a good boy. I didn't get in trouble. I had straight A's and B's in school. I, I, I played baseball in elementary and middle school. I was like, why did, you know, what was the problem? And I remember as a young kid, him calling and being like, hey, I'm coming to pick you up, bud. We'll spend the weekend. And I would wait at the front door for an hour. And then a second hour would go by. And then we get the phone call. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't come this weekend. I got to work or something came up. That happened so many times that when my mom would say my father was coming to get me, I wouldn't even pack my bag because I didn't believe. And it really made me feel like nothing, like I wasn't worth anything to my dad. Now, when I got into middle school, my mother uh, married my stepfather. 
and they actually ended up staying married for 27 years. So I actually grew up more with my stepdad than I did my father. And he was a good role model. Uh, he was into bodybuilding as well. Um, he, he was a salesman. He made really good money. Took me out on the boat, took me fishing, uh, actually showed me how to build and be a carpenter. That's actually what I do now. So a lot of things that I learned and took carried with me in life, I learned from my stepfather, not my actual dad. But it wasn't until I got up into my 40s and me and my mom were sitting down and we had a conversation. I'm like, why didn't dad love me? And she's like, honey, she's like, your father did love you. She's like, you had nothing to do with it. Your father was running around with me with other women and I couldn't take it anymore. She's like, you know, your father is selfish and egotistical and self-centered and that's just the way he is and that's the way he's always been. She's like, but it had nothing to do with you, sweetie. She said, and I really wish you would have came to me 20 years ago and I could have told you this because you could have let go of that a lot sooner than you've been doing. She said, I never realized you were holding on to this for 30 plus years. And I did use that as a crutch sometimes to drink and drug. Um, I, I was like, well, you know, my dad ran out on me. I'm not no good. So I might as well get drink. I might as well drink or get high. It wasn't until I got into more athletics. I, I became a golden glove boxer and a junior Olympic boxer. Um, I was almost a professional skateboarder. Uh, I grew up here in Baltimore with uh, Brandon Novak and Bucky Lassie. And we skated on the same skate teams. Um, that's pretty much all I did for like five years. I, I skateboarded and every single day. And that's what I wanted to be until I started drinking and doing drugs. Once I started drinking and doing drugs, all my sports stopped. I didn't care about anything other than going out and getting high and drinking with my buddies. And it didn't dawn on me that my life had changed that much until you know my mom brought it to my attention tim you don't play sports anymore all you do is go hang out with your buddies and you're cutting class and you're missing school and your grades you're almost failing out of senior year what's going on i'm like wow well you know i, I signed up for the marine corps i know i wasn't getting into, high, into college so i'm just having fun mom it's not a big deal you know i'm going away next next uh summer to boot camp so i'm just gonna get it out of my system and she never really put two and two together. Um, she kind of just let me do my thing. She was working two to three jobs sometimes just to take care of me. Um, my brother had done moved out. He was in his 20s and I'm all going through high school. So it was just me and my mom and my stepdad. And she was working a lot, um, trying to bring you know money into the house. And I pretty much, I would come home and let myself in the house and fix my dinner and, and pretty much be alone for a, a lot of the time, most of the time. So I had plenty of downtime to have friends come over or me go to their house and, you know, smoke pot or do LSD, um, mushrooms. I was smoking PCP. How old were um, you the first, <clears throat> the first time you ever did anything? The first time I ever did anything, I was in seventh grade and I went to my friend's house and he lifted up his mom's mattress and found a joint underneath of his mom's mattress. And I remember him saying, you want to go outside and hit it? And we went outside and, all, and me and him, and it was him and his brother. And we're all sitting there and we're all like, who's going to do it first? Who's going to do it first? And I was like, screw it. I'll, I'll try it. And I remember hitting it twice. And he hit it twice and his brother hit it twice. And we put it out and put it back underneath the bed. Hmm. And I, I remember walking home. And I was like, am I high? Am I not high? 
oh my God, is my mom going to catch me? Like I started having anxiety and I didn't touch drugs again or nothing until my senior year of high school. So it was just kind of a, like, we kind of dared each other to hit it. And so we kind of did, but that, that just wasn't for me at that time. I was still in, in sports and stuff. So I think I kind of just did it to be fun and hanging out with my buddies just to try it. Um, now ninth grade, I did go to a freshman welcome to high school party. One of my buddies had it. And uh, one of the seniors there was able to get alcohol and provided it to all of us. And I, that was the first time I ever tried alcohol was in ninth grade. And I got super drunk. And the next day I was throwing up the hangover, the whole deal. My mom came and picked me up and she noticed I wasn't feeling good. And she's like, you drank last night, didn't you? I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, I wouldn't feel right punishing you because the whole rest of your day is ruined. And that's more of a punishment than anything I can do to you. So the rest of the day I was, I was throwing up, I was sick. Um, she gave me a paper bag to throw up in and we were having a cook at that thing. She gave me a paper bag. She made me shuck 50 ears of corn for the uh, cookout. And that was pretty much my punishment. She's like, here, you can throw up in this bag and shuck the corn and put it in that bag. And I hope you learned your lesson. And I did, because I didn't touch alcohol again until my senior year. But like I said, when the senior year came around, I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going in the Marines at the end of school. As soon as I graduate, I'm going away that next week. And uh, I was like, I'm going to start going to parties and having fun. So I started going to parties, started drinking, started smoking pot. LSD was huge in the 90s. So I was, I was dropping acid and mushrooms. And believe it or not, PCP was around in my high school. And I, and I did that a handful of times when it was around. And if anybody had a pain, pain medicine or pain pill, I would take that. How is PCP? It, I've never done that. It's like... LSD and uh, I would say um, alcohol. So you have that, you feel invincible, kind of like you're strong and you don't give a shit what happens and you think you can take on the world and then you crash and you feel like crap. So that's the best way. And you kind of have this in in and out of body experience, almost like an LSD trip. So you're like seeing things that aren't there. You feel super strong. You're like amped up, ready to go. And it only lasts for like an hour or two. And then it's it's just gone. So you would want some more, do it again. You know what I mean? But it was a very, it wouldn't last long. Um, I remember one night I did it. And my stepfather came in drunk. And he didn't drink that often. Like he was not a big alcohol guy. There wasn't alcohol in my house whatsoever. And I remember him coming home and he was drunk and he was yelling at my mom. And I'm, I'm 18. I'm getting ready to go in the Marines. I'm in pretty damn good shape. And I'm like, mom, he's not going to yell at you like that. And I remember her saying, Tim, he's drunk. You can't do nothing about it. And then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, she has no idea how to smoke PCP. I could rip this dude apart because I feel like a superhuman at this time. And uh, she stumbled up the steps and went to bed. And it was just kind of like, man, I could have just really messed him up if I really wanted to. But it kind of de-escalated. I went downstairs and, and just smoked the joint and watched TV for the rest of the night. And it kind of went away. But PCP was kind of, it just, when it came around for like a six-month period. But I would do anything as soon as I got alcohol to my lips. As soon as I had two or three drinks in me, I was like, what else is here? I'll try it. Now, luckily... 
cocaine and heroin wasn't around in my senior year. Like I, I've never even seen it. it. Nobody talked about it. Nobody, it wasn't around. I couldn't get it. But what, what was, what was available, I would try because I was open to anything. Once I got a couple drinks in me, I was like, let's go. You know, let's go pick up some girls. Let's go get in a fight. Let's go break into cars and steal stereos. I didn't care what it was. When I had that alcohol in me, I was ready to go for anything. You know, it, it's when I got into the Marines, that's when the alcoholism got, got the worst. The drugs stopped. Um, because I, I had to get drug tests and all that stuff. So the drugs completely stopped. But once I graduated boot camp and we got stationed in North Carolina. As soon as we got done at four o'clock, we were at the bars, we were at the strip clubs and we were drinking and, and we're 18, 19, 20 years old. But the motto at all the bars outside of the base were, if you're old enough to take a bullet for this country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. So they would serve us as minors. And their only stipulation was you can't stand there with a beer in your hand in case uh, the authorities walk in. You could order your beer or shot or whatever you're drinking and drink it, but you had to sit it back down on the table just so you weren't physically seen holding an alcoholic beverage. But they had no problems serving us at underage. And when we went to these bars, we would see our sergeants there. And these guys are late 20s, early 30s. And they would be like, have fun. Just make sure you're up at 3, 34 o'clock at formation, ready to go. We don't care what you guys do. Just don't get in trouble with the law and make sure you're on time at formation in the morning. So for us as young guys, we're looking up to these older guys. We're like, man, this is, this is kind of, I guess this is what we do. You know, we, we train hard and then we, we play hard and it was kind of expected on us. So there was no kind of like deterrent from these older guys. Oh, you guys shouldn't be drinking. You know, we have stuff to do tomorrow. They were just like, make, we don't care what you do. Just make sure you're up. Uh, in um, 95, my unit got deployed to Somalia for Operation United Shield. This was right after Desert Storm. So the war had ended, but we were there as a peacekeeping mission. So I actually got to see the ramifications of war and what it did to human beings and buildings and, and how it affected another country. And uh, it stuck with me for a while. It really did. It bothered me a little bit, but not as much as I thought until I actually got discharged from the military. So at the age of 20, I get discharged and I get home. The first month was awesome. I was like, man, I'm out of the military. I think I get up at 3.30 in the morning. I don't have to run four miles today. You know, I don't have to wear a certain uniform. I can come and go as I please. Moved back into my mom's house. And within that month, I was like, I can smoke pot again. I'm home. I no drug tests. So I was drinking and smoking pot. The first month was awesome. It was kind of like a decompression period. The second month home kind of hit. And I was like, man, I, I got to get a damn job. Um, I got to get a car. I got to start paying bills, helping my mom out. And I got to start looking for a place to live because I'm 20. I, don't, I really shouldn't be living at home anymore. And the third month came. And I got severely depressed. I stopped showering. I stopped shaving. I didn't want to leave my room. I was drinking and smoking pot in my bedroom. And I found myself one day not knowing what my purpose was, not knowing why I was here. What the hell am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I went into my stepfather's armoire and I grabbed his gun and I sat it on my lap. 
and I was looking at it and I was contemplating using it. I called my girlfriend at the time and I told her what I was doing. And she was at my house in like five minutes. She comes over and she's like, you got to put that away. What are you doing? I was like, I don't know. I'm lost. I don't know what's going on. I'm severely depressed. She put it away. My mom comes home like an hour or two later. And I told her I was severely depressed. I didn't tell her. I just had my stepfather's gun in my lap and I was contemplating using it. I didn't want to scare her. I didn't want her to have me committed. But I told her I was severely depressed. There's something going on. So she made some appointments for some doctors. I got in to see some doctors and they diagnosed me with bipolar one disorder and manic depressant. Now in 95, 96, PTSD was not looked at like it is now. They didn't have a determination of PTSD in the nineties. When you got out of the Marines or you got out of the service, they discharged you and set you on your way. And there was no psychology or go see a psychiatrist of what you're seeing and went through. They were pretty much like, thanks for your service. See you later. Mm-hmm. So PTSD wasn't a thing in the nineties, like it is now. I'm sure the government knew about it, but it wasn't taken care of the way it is now. So the doctors wanted to put me on medicines. I started taking the medicines, but I wasn't indulging to the doctors that I was drinking every day and smoking pot. So after about three to four weeks, when you had to go back and, do a checkup with the doctors and my medicines weren't working, they couldn't pinpoint why. So their solution was, well, that's up the milligrams. Go back another three, four weeks. What's going on? Medicines still aren't working. Okay, well, maybe they didn't work. Let's switch you to these medicines. Go back for another checkup. What's going on? Okay, well, maybe they didn't work. I went, I went on this cycle of switching medicines, switching milligrams, adding things, taking things off for years because I was never truly honest with the doctors telling them that I was drinking and smoking pot. So it didn't matter what type of psychology medicines they were going to give me. Nothing was going to work because I had drugs and alcohol in my system. It wasn't going to allow those drugs to actually help my bipolar and depression. This went on all the way up until I went into rehab in 2021. Well, I'm I'm also bipolar. Yeah. I feel your pain. And uh, I used to say it like this. I was depressed because I was drinking and I was drinking because I was depressed. Uh, Absolutely. It's just an endless, endless cycle. It sounds so cliche, but it really is an endless cycle and it's vicious one. It it is. And you're like, man, you know what? I used to be, you know, what is wrong with me? Why do I have bipolar? Why, why is my mom normal? Why is my brother normal? What, what's wrong with me? Why do I have to suffer like this? And I would look down upon it and that would make me drink and do drugs because to me, there was something wrong with me. Why couldn't I just live a normal life? You know, why did I have to get bipolar? Why do I have to be a manic depressant? You know, my friends aren't. What's wrong with me? And that did, that, that knocked my self-esteem down, the way I felt about myself. I felt, you know, worthless, that there was something wrong with me and they couldn't figure out how to take care of it. I didn't realize until I started to get sober that I was the one who was making it difficult for me to get on the proper medicines because I was an alcoholic and drug addict. Uh, you know, I, I went through, I got out at the age of 20. From the age of 20 up until I was about 40 years old, so 20 years, I had 46 jobs. 
And that's all due to my bipolar and alcohol and drug addiction. I would have a job for three months and quit. I'd have a job for six months and, and call out sick. And then my anxiety and panic attack would come in. I'd call out another day, then call out another day, and then, and then just wouldn't go back. And that was a cycle for 20 plus years. And, and you know, God love my wife. She would never look down on me. She would like, just go get another job. You know, she was never like, I'm leaving. That's enough. You can't hold a job. She knew I had bipolar manic depressant. She knew I was drinking every day. And to be honest with you, I look back on it a lot. And I'm like, why in the hell didn't she leave? Because I sure as shit put her through so much stuff over 27 years. And um, I asked her when I got sober one day, I said, why didn't you leave me after all this time? And she simply said, because I loved you. And I knew you could always be the man that I once married. So for all that 20 plus years that I've been with her, she never gave up on me. When I gave up on myself, she always saw the person that I could be when I never saw it myself. And, and that was the addiction, the mental illness. And, and, you know, it got so bad that in my 30s, I had lost my umpteenth job. And my wife looks at me and she's like, what are you going to do? She's like, this is like your 15th or 20th job since you've been home. I was like, I really don't know. I was like, I really don't. And she said, what would make you happy? And, and I was like, I'm, I'm, I kind of miss doing sports. I was like, hey, I'm 32. I'm still kind of in good shape. I would like to do some sports. And she's like, well, what do you want to do? And this was when mixed martial arts was getting really big. And I said, I think I want to go fight. I was like, it's been a long time since I put gloves on or been in the ring with somebody. And I said, that really made me feel great about myself. And she's like, I'll give you one year. Go train, see if you can get some fights, see if you can make something of this. But after a year, if nothing happens, then you have to go get a job and, and like enough's enough. And I'm like, okay. So she gave me a whole year. I went down to the local gym down here. I started training. I started getting fights. Within that year, I was fighting in Atlantic City and in Philadelphia, Harris Casino. I was fighting on TV, local televisions. I had sponsors. And, but I wasn't making that much money. I was making like $1,500 per fight which is not a lot. And I was fighting once every 90 days. So it wasn't like a huge income, but it was making me feel as if I was, you know, worth something. I, I kind of was like, man, I, you know, I, I can do something with myself again. My last fight, I, I fought for two and a half years. My last fight, it was coming up on my 35th birthday. And my last fight, I tore my rotator cuff. And I get out, I go to the locker room, I'm starting to put my shirt on and I can't lift my right arm. So my trainer comes over, helps me put my shirt on. I go out to the crowd and my wife's out there. She's like, how you feeling? I was like, ah. and she noticed I'm holding a drink with my left arm and that's not my dominant arm. My right arm is my dominant. She's like, why are you holding your hand? Why are you holding your drink with your left arm? And I'm like, I, I, I can't lift my right arm. She's like, what do you mean? I said, I did something wrong. I said, something, something's bad. She's like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. So I go to the doctor the next day or two and I had torn all the ligaments in my shoulder and my rotator cuff. So I had major rotator cuff surgery. And that's what started my four year long addiction to pain medicine. Go have surgery. And it was a nine month rehab. And for those nine months, 
we're talking, this is 10 years ago, so I'm 46 now. They didn't stop giving you pain medicine like they do now. You would just go to your doctor and be like, I'm still in pain. And instead of them trying to wean you off, they were like, well, what are you taking? I'm, I'm taking Percocets now. What milligrams? I'm taking five. Well, let's try tens. I do that for a month or two. Then I'd go back and be like, your Percocets are hurting my stomach. I need something a less little, uh, it doesn't make my stomach upset. Okay, well, we'll switch you to hydrocodones. So then I was on hydrocodones for a couple months. And I'd go back and be like, the hydrocodones just don't do what the Percocets did. You know, it didn't take the pain away. So finally, their all, all time you know, decision was, you know what, we'll just put you on Oxycontins. They'll take care of you. And since the 10 milligrams won't work, we'll put you on 20 milligram Oxycontins and we'll just monitor you from there. So for the next three years after that first surgery, I had to have two neck operations. I didn't realize it, but I tore uh, ligaments and tendons in my neck. I had to have two neck surgeries. I had to have two hernia operations. And I tore all the ligaments in my arm. I had that major reconstructive surgery in my right arm. So over that span of four years, I had five major surgeries. And they just kept giving me this pain medicine, giving me this pain medicine, giving me this pain medicine. And I was drinking about a 12-pack of beer every single day on top of this medicine. And like every good addict, I wasn't taking the medicine one every four hours. I was taking two or three every four hours, finishing my prescription two weeks earlier than what I should be and going back to the doctor and giving them some bullshit story like, oh, my dog knocked it over. Um, I dropped it in the toilet, you know, it dropped in the sink and got wet. And they would just give me new prescriptions and prescriptions. And I, I'm in my bedroom one day and I'm thinking about everything that's going on. I'm like, man, not only am I an alcoholic now, I'm, I'm a freaking drug addict. I'm taking this, all this pain medicine. I can't stop. And I got scared and I'm like, man, this is how people die. I'm going to, I take 10 to 15, 20 milligram per um, Oxycontin today and I'm drinking a 12 pack of beer. I'm going to freaking die in, one, in my sleep one night. And I got scared and I told myself, you know what, if I'm going to die, I'm doing it. And I'm not going to uh, let, I'm not going to let the, the, the drugs and alcohol take it from me. So I go in my bedroom and um, I open up my bottle of uh, oxys that I had left. I had 18 of them and I took the whole bottle, took all 18 of them and I drank a 12 pack of beer in like two hours. I just guzzled them and I laid in my bed and I remember saying, please don't let me wake up because I can't do this anymore. I just want the pain to stop and, and I don't know how to get help. And I woke up the next day. I wake up the next day and I'm like, oh my God, I woke up. You know, why am I here? You know, what, what the hell is going on? And I go into the bathroom and I had uh, a whole nother refill in the bathroom. I have 30 of them in my bathroom. And I open up the bottle and I dump the whole bottle of oxys down the um, toilet and I flush the toilet. And I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, I don't care how bad this gets. I'm never taking pain medicine again. And for the next 10 days, I was the, probably the sickest I have ever been in my entire life. Throwing up nausea, insomnia, the sweats, the jitters, couldn't eat anything. But every morning when I would wake up, I would look in that mirror and tell myself, I'm never taking pain medicine again. Like enough's enough. So I was able to stop the pain meds after four and a half years by myself. But now 
I'm missing something, you know, because I'm used to drinking and taking my pain medicine and smoking my weed. So now I'm missing the pain medicine. So I, I'm not feeling right. I'm, I'm searching for something now because I need that. I needed something to fill that void of that pain medicine. And I'm lost, man. I'm like, what the hell is going on with me? So I get in my truck one day and, and I decide to go take a nice ride down at this park by my house. And people go there and go picnicking and walk their dogs and take their boats out and go fishing. It's a really nice place. And I'm driving through it and I get around to this bend where my senior year of high school, my best friend lost control of his car and hit the tree and unfortunately lost his life at the age of 18. And on the tree is this picture and there's a book there and you can write to him and talk to him, kind of like a little memorial for him. And I park my truck and I get out and I walk over to the tree. And I'm like, Bill, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I, I can't stop drinking. I've lost so many jobs over the years. You know, me and my wife aren't getting along. I don't know my purpose in life. I just need to know that I'm not alone, man, that, that I have a reason to be here, that somebody's watching over me. There's something else out there other than me because I truly don't know why I'm here and, and what my next step is. I don't know what I'm doing. Just please give me a sign. And I get back in my truck and I go to leave the park and I'm crying. I can barely, I can barely drive. So I pull over, but instead of pulling over how traffic's going, I pull over on the wrong side of the traffic facing oncoming traffic and I park and about 10 minutes goes by and this car pulls up and we're, we're hood to hood, bumper to bumper. And I'm watching this man get out of his vehicle. And he opens the back door and he gets his dog out and he's getting ready to go over to where the water is and walk his dog. And I'm looking at this man. I'm like, oh my God. And I get out of my truck and I said, Mr. Bill, it was my best friend who had lost his life in 1996. It was his father. I hadn't seen him since 1996. This is March 16, 2017, 21 years later. And I said, Mr. Bill, and he looks at me and he says, Timmy, what's wrong? And I, and I fall to the curb and I'm crying. I'm like, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. I don't know what my purpose is in life. I'm lost. I don't know why I'm here. And he walks over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, Tim, I'm not supposed to be here this morning. My wife came to me in a dream last night and told me to come here at 10 a.m. to walk the dog. I'm supposed to be in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina on a family reunion. I was supposed to leave at 6 a.m. this morning. But my wife told me to come here at 10 a.m. to walk the dog. That's the only reason I'm here. And I said, Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him to give me a sign to tell me that I wasn't alone, that there was something else out there. And he says, Tim, I think I was here to see you this morning. I can't explain that experience that happened that day. And for about 10 minutes... I was like, okay, everything's going to be all right. I'm going to be fine. I'm being watched over. My addictive personality and my mental illness then stepped in and said, well, you don't have to stop drinking. You don't have to stop smoking pot because somebody's watching over you. Nothing's going to happen to you. You're bulletproof now. So I leave the park. And for the next four years, I drink the most alcohol I have ever drank in my entire life. The beer wasn't doing it. The, the Miller Lights, the Bud Lights, the, the regular beer wasn't doing it. So I switched to the IPAs. 
the lagers, the beers with 10%, 11% alcohol. I was still drinking 12 of them a day. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to start getting some whiskey. I'm going to start getting some shots because I'm still missing something. So I'd start off with three or four fireball whiskeys. And I, I would take them real quick. And that would give me that feeling, that hot, warm feeling that the pain medicine used to give me. Mm. So I was like, man, okay, I, fa- I found it. There it is. I like this. So I would start off and buy four or five of them and, and guzzle all four or five of them and then still drink my 12 pack for the day. Well, I started to gain weight. My, my, my skin started turning red. And I started feeling like crap. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to stop drinking beer altogether. So I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go to the liquor store and I'd get a sleeve of Fireball whiskey, which is 10 uh, of them in a, in a sleeve. That was my, uh, that was my modus operandi. That was my MO for quite a while. <laughs> yep. And uh, I would drink all 10 of them before one o'clock in the afternoon. Go to work. As soon as I got off of work at 3.30, I'd stop at the liquor store and I'd get 10 more of them. And I would drink all 10 of them by eight, nine o'clock at night. Before I went to rehab, I was buying three sleeves of Fireball whiskey and drinking all 30 of them a day. For over a year, I was drinking 30 Fireball miniatures a day. And and I took it out one day to see how much alcohol I was actually drinking. And one of those miniatures is two and a half shots. So two and a half times 30, I'm drinking 75 shots a day of Fireball whiskey. What got me into rehab was I, I just got a new truck and I'm leaving the liquor store after getting my sleeve and I hit something and I have no idea still to this day what I hit. I don't know if it was a parked car, if it was a wall on the side of the road, a stop sign. I have no idea, but I get home and I tell my wife, I just hit something. I'm going to bed. I don't want to deal with it. So I go to bed and like every good alcoholic, I wake up the next morning. Good morning. I'm going to go to the store and go get some milk and some water. You need anything? And she's like, how are you going to do that? And I'm like, in my truck in the driveway. And she's like, go look at your truck then. I go outside and my side front passenger front tires hanging off the rim. My side mirror is completely gone. It's ripped off the truck. And I'm sitting there looking at my truck. I'm like, what the hell happened last night? She pops her head out the front door. And she says, you have no idea what you hit last night, do you? I said, I don't remember anything. She said, you could have killed yourself. You could have killed somebody else. I don't want you here anymore. You have to go figure this out, but you, you cannot stay here anymore. I can't do this anymore. So I go in the house and I pack my bags. I call my buddy. I'm like, hey, man, wife just kicked me out. You know, can I come there for a couple of days? You know, let things blow over. Because in a couple of days, I'll be able to go home and continue my drinking, you know, just give it a couple of days. It'll be okay. And he's like, sure, man, come on over. So I go to his house and he looks at me and he's like, dude, you just got kicked out of your house. Your wife doesn't want you there. You got nothing else to do. Why don't we go to the bar? I'm like, you know, that sounds like a great idea because now I have a reason to drink. My wife just kicked me out of the house. I have a legitimate reason to go drinking now. So we go to the bar, we drink, I get shit faced. As I'm leaving the bar, Less than 24 hours later, I rear-end somebody at the Red Man. And I get out of my truck. And I look down, and he had a tow hitch on the back of his truck. His car, his truck was fine. There was absolutely nothing wrong. But now my front, my front bumper's smashed in. 
And I look at him, I'm like, are you okay, man? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I said, your truck's okay. You're okay. I'm out of here. And I slapped him on his back. I got in my truck and I took off because I knew I was going to jail. I was drunk driving. I, I, I caused an accident. I was going to jail. Get to my buddy's house. And I'm like, man, I can't stay here, dude. I was like, I, I got to go figure this out. Can't go home. I, I'm just going to go be by myself and, and just figure some stuff out. So I grab my stuff and I leave. Well, as I leave, I stop at the liquor store and, and get another sleeve of Fireball whiskey. And I go and I park at a parking ride where people park their cars and grab the train to go to work for the day. And I sit in the parking lot. I turn my phone off because I don't want to talk to nobody. I don't want nobody to call me. I don't want to just want to be by myself. I want to seclude myself and drink and feel sorry for myself. And go through all the bad shit that I've done and put my family through and just feel like a real piece of crap. So I turn my phone off and I sit there for 48 hours, drinking and passing out, drinking and passing out, not eating anything. And I'm freezing. It's at the end of February. It's still like 30 degrees here in Maryland. It's freezing. And after 48 hours, I turn my phone on at 7 after 10 in the morning, March 5th. And at nine after 10, two minutes later, after having my phone off for 48 hours, the phone rings. And I pick it up. I'm like, hello. And it's my childhood friend, Brandon Novak. And he's like, lodging? What the fuck are you doing? And I said, man, I'm, I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm drunk. And he says, good, motherfucker. That's what you need. I just got off the phone with your wife and your mom. I have a plane ticket set for you this evening at 8.30 p.m. You're going to go down to Banyan Treatment Centers in West Palm Beach, Florida, and you're going to go get help. And I'm like, okay, man, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. He's like, Tim, get on that plane. He's like, you, I want you to call me when you pass security because I want to make sure you're getting on the plane. You're not going to get dropped off to the airport and catch a cab and leave. Call me when you get to the airport. So hang up the phone. I'm like, man, I don't know if I want to go. You know, my mind's racing now. Five, 10 minutes goes by, my wife calls. She's like, hey, Tim, I, uh, I just got off the phone with Brandon. Can you please come home, take a shower, pack your bags, maybe take a nap and try to eat something? It, we had about four or five hours for the plane left. I'm like, okay, I'll come home. I go home, I take a shower. I couldn't eat, man. I, drinking for 48 hours. Now my stomach's in knots. I'm having anxiety and panic attacks because now I got to go to rehab in Florida. How long am I going for? how the hell did I get my life this messed up to where I got to go to rehab to get my shit together? And my mind's racing. I couldn't take a nap. And I'm really just like, what the hell did I do? How did my life get this bad? And I'm sitting on the edge of the bed. And about two to three minutes goes by. And my addiction grabs me by the hand and walks me to the basement of my house and throws a rope around my neck and stands me up on a bucket and tells me to end the pain. And I listen and I go down to my basement and I put a rope around my neck and I stand up on a bucket. And about three, four minutes goes by and my, my wife realizes that I'm not in the bedroom anymore. And she comes down into the basement and she sees me in the corner of the basement in the dark with a rope around my neck, hysterically crying, standing on the bucket. She says, what are you doing? 
And I just look at her and I say, I can't do it. I, I can't. I just want the pain to stop. I don't know how. I, I just can't do this anymore. I want it to stop. And she just looks at me and says, please, Tim, please. Do you know what this would do to your children? Please get down and get on that plane this evening. Everything is going to be all right. Just please get down. And I sat there for about a minute and then I took the rope off my neck. And I fall to the floor and I'm crying. And I go upstairs and I call my buddy. I'm like, hey, man, uh, I got to go. If I don't get on that plane this evening, this, my addiction is going to kill me. I have to go. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you pass security. So my mom picks me up and takes me to the airport. And I get past security. And I call my buddy. I'm like, hey, man, I'm past security. I got about 30, 35 minutes for the plane boards. Just want to let you know that I'm here. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. You're about to get back everything that you've lost times 10. And he hangs up the phone. As I go to sit down in the seat, waiting for them to call my, my boarding pass, as I sit down in the chair, I get this overwhelming feeling of hope that comes over my entire body. It was a warm blanket feeling, just like the pain pills gave me, just like the whiskey gave me. It came over my entire body. My anxiety went away. My panic attack went away. My racing thoughts went away. My worrying went away. And this voice that I've never heard before in a calming, loving manner says, everything's going to be all right. It was the most amazing feeling and experience that I've ever felt in my entire life. At that moment, when I heard that voice and my body went completely calm, I knew at the age of 44 years old, I was finally going to get the help I needed to save my life. I got on the plane. I got to rehab. I accepted rehab with open arms. I had no doubt that it was going to help me this time. I get in there. I went to every single meeting. There were seven meetings a day. I went to all seven meetings a day. I went to extra meetings for um, veterans and first responders. I spoke. I journaled. I did the homework that they asked me to do. I did every single thing that they asked me to do in rehab. Plus, I went a little bit over. I actually went kind of addicted mode in rehab. I changed my diet. They had a personal trainer there. I started working out with a personal trainer Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I told myself if I was going to do this and I was going to live the life of recovery and sobriety, that I was going to do it 100%. And that's mentally, spiritually, and physically. I didn't just want to work the steps of sobriety and recovery. I wanted to live it. So for me, that meant changing my diet, getting my physical, my physical activity in reading, praying, doing everything that they told us to do and taking it seriously. Because at that point in my life, I knew I was there to save my life. This wasn't a game. I had tried to take my life once. I was about to do it a second time. I thought about it when I was in my 20s. And all it did was get worse and worse and worse. So for me, recovery was a life and death situation at that point. When I got there and they did all the 
exams on me and took my blood and the heart pressure, blood pressure and heart rate and stuff. My blood pressure was 169 over 145. I was on the verge of having a stroke. My liver and kidneys were four times what they should have been. And the doctor looks at me and asked me how much I drank. And I told him, and he was like, I don't know how you haven't had a stroke yet. He's like, but if you continue to drink like this for the next year and a half, you will not make it to the age of 47 years old. He said, you literally came in at the right time to reverse your liver and kidneys. He said, if you would have waited any more, he said, the damage would have been irreversible and you ultimately would have died from alcoholism. It was at that point that I stopped believing in coincidences, that I truly believed at that time in my life that it was meant to be for me to get the help needed to save my life. And I dwelled on it for the first week or two of, of why did I have to suffer for 27 years? Why was I an addict? Why did my mental health have to deteriorate? Why, why, why me? And the more I got sober, the more I did research, the more I read, the more I, I started living life of recovery, I finally realized that it wasn't happening to me. It was happening for me. I had to go through the, that experience to be able to share my story with those who are still suffering with mental illness and addiction, for me to be genuine and to tell the truth of how it affected me and my loved ones, to have the authenticity. I used to be like, why 27 years? Why couldn't it have been a couple of years? Because I wouldn't have been grateful. I would have shit on it. I wouldn't have taken it seriously. I take it seriously now. I am grateful to be alive. I'm grateful that my wife didn't leave me. I'm grateful that my children accept me back and that I'm sober and they want me in their lives. I'm grateful now that I finally found my purpose in life. And that is to share my story with as many people as possible in hopes that they know that they are not alone. Their pain is not theirs alone. Others suffer. There is help out there. We can recover. And we can live the life we have always wanted to do. Recovery is possible. I gave up hope several times and it almost cost me my life. If you're watching this and you think that you're alone or you're ashamed that you have an addiction or mental health issue, I assure you that you're not alone. Don't be ashamed. Ask for the help that you need to save your life. You are loved. Your family members love you. Your friends love you. You are needed. You are a special person. The, the probability of us being born is one in 400 trillion. We are special when we were born. We're all here for a purpose. We all have a reason. And we can find it. Don't lose hope. Don't. As long as we have hope, Anything can change for us and we can live the life that we've always wanted to live. This is great advice. It really is. You got some story. I can appreciate it. And, and you know, I, I leave a lot of stuff out. Um, some, some things I, I don't think I'm still ready 
to share um, personal things that happened, you know, like to my daughter um, that I took it upon myself. I mean, you know what? I'll, I'll share it. My oldest daughter at the age of 16, um, <clears throat> was raped, was drugged and raped at a party. And uh, as a father, it killed me because I thought I was supposed to be her protector. I was supposed to watch over her and make sure that nothing like that ever happens. And that hit me hard. And, and I went into a deep depression after that happened because I thought I failed as a person. I failed as a father, I failed as a husband. And during the interview process of um, the detectives asking my daughter what happened, it uh, it came out that my brother, <clears throat> my brother had molested her three times. And uh, I didn't know how to deal with that. You know, somebody I looked up to for a very long time. Somebody that I loved. And I felt deceived and... and uh, to be frankly honest with you, I wanted to kill him. That was my first reaction. And I drank. I, I tried to drink it away. I tried to drug it away. And all it did was make it worse. All it did was make me more depressed and more sad at the fact that I wasn't there. There was nothing I could do to stop that. And I'm just starting to really realize that I can't hold myself accountable for something that I didn't know about. But it took me down for a very long time. And uh, it made my mental illness and my addiction worse because I really then thought I was a failure. You know, um, as a human being, you don't wish anything on anybody. You really don't. And um, all I want is to be able to. I don't want to forget it because I'm learning to. For, I'm learning to forgive, but that is a very, very, very hard one to forgive anybody for doing. I don't think I ever will forgive, but I need to do something in order to continue to heal, continue to be a better person and continue to stay sober and in recovery. That has been one of the hardest hurdles I've had to deal with getting sober and, and being in recovery. Um, um, my children are, are, are everything to me. And it really did make me feel like I, I had let them down. I let her down and um, you know, I, I want people to understand that when those type of things in your life happen that you can't change, what has really helped me a lot is the serenity prayer. Um, 
It really has when I've looked at things that I cannot change. I've learned to accept them and I've, I've learned to know the difference between what I can change and what I can. And that has helped me a lot. You know, these little tools that you learn in recovery and sobriety, these little sayings, you know, one day at a time, um, keep it simple, stupid, you know, think, 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 um, time, things I must earn. Learning these tools in sobriety and recovery has helped me immensely to stay sober and in recovery. It's not just there to to help us through the first 90 days. It's there to help us change our lives completely. I sometimes wish that normal people could do the 12 steps because it changes you as a person. It changes your perspective on life. It, It gives you gratitude to be alive and the things that you have. It helps you to make amends to people that maybe things you've been holding on for years and really hurt your heart. Finally, you're able to let go. It just really helps me now. I'm coming up on 17 months sober in a week or two weeks, sorry. And um, I read every day. I read something about sobriety or recovery every single day. I pray every day. And that's one thing I, I never believed in a higher power until I got sober. My mindset was like, if there's something out there, I'm not saying God or Jesus, I'm just saying a higher power, something. If there's something out there, why am I suffering like this? Why do others suffer like this? Why do children go starving? Why are people murdered? That was my mindset. Now I just, I've realized, you know, things happen for us. They happen for us. And once I switched that perspective, once I changed that mindset, everything changed. I used to be the glass half full guy. Now, where's the rest of it? Why isn't my glass all the way to the top? I need more. Now I look at it as at least I have half a glass full and I'm fine with that because I'm content now. You know, somebody walked into the gym one day and, and they look like they were having a problem. I'm like, you okay? They're like, man, I had to go to work this morning. Now I got to come to the gym. Now I got to go home, clean up and, and make dinner. And I said, uh, why don't you change one word in that sentence? And what do you mean? I said, you get to wake up in the morning and go to work. You get to go to the gym. You get to go to a home to clean up and make dinner for your family. I said, be grateful for everything you get to do. Some people can't get up in the morning or some people don't get up in the morning. Some people don't have jobs to go to. Some people physically can't walk into a gym and do exercise. Some people don't have families to cook dinner for. Be extremely thankful for what you have and appreciate every day. And that's what I'm trying to do every single day. I wake up and I thank my higher power for another day. And I ask him to help me reach as many people as possible. That's what I truly believe my purpose is now. That's great. One of the things that uh, stuck out to me also earlier is when you said uh, time. What is it? Things Things I must earn. Things I must earn. That was it. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Stood out. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, my oldest daughter, she's 23. 
And um, when I first came home from rehab, I was like, look at me. I did 32 days in rehab. Woo, you know, I'm going to pat on my back. And, you know, and my, my daughter lived upstairs in my house. And she would walk in the house, not say a word to me, not look at me, just go right upstairs to her bedroom. And I look at my wife. I'm like, why isn't she talking to me? She's like, Tim, it, you drank her entire life. Yeah, there were some good times, but she's seen a lot of shitty times. She's seen the worst of her dad. And she's not ready to speak to you. I'm like, I just did 32 days in, in rehab. My, you know what I mean? Look at me. And she's like, give it time. I'm like, okay. A month goes by, two months goes by. Like six months goes by, I'm sober. My daughter still hasn't talked to me. I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, I'm putting in the work. I'm going to meetings. I got a sponsor. I'm reading my, I'm doing the steps. You know, what, what, what the deal? She's like, Tim, just give it time. Just give it time. And this is before I heard things I must earn. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Finally, on the nine month of my sobriety, the day of, the nine month actual day, I get a, I get a text message from my daughter. And she's like, dad, I know we haven't spoken but I just want you to know how proud I am of you. I love you. Thank you for letting me have the time to heal because I know you were healing as well. But I just want you to know that I love you and I'm really proud to have my dad back. And I mean, I, I, no amount of money can, can put that feeling on, on that special day. And uh, I told my wife, she got home from work. I said, look, look what your daughter texted me. And I read it to her. She started to cry. And she's like, see, I told you, just give it time. Just give it time. And uh, I said that to my sponsor. And that's when he looked at me. He was like, yeah, time, things I must earn. I was like, man, I wish you would have told me that months ago. Like, that would have helped me out a big time. You know, I'm, here I am. Like, why isn't she talking to me? She's like, Tim, I told you, she needed to see your actions, not your words. She needed to see that you were living in recovery, not just saying you were going to meetings, not just saying you were, you were sober, but change your life completely and actually live the life of recovery. Because being sober and being in recovery are two different things. You know, you could just, you could just not drink or not do drugs and be a completely miserable, angry person. Recovery, I believe, gives you the tools and the steps to be a completely different human being. And a happy one at that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you have more gratitude. I believe you have more gratitude with, with everything that comes your way. And, and you're, you're able to accept things a lot easier and, and look at it. Again, not, it doesn't happen to you. It's happening for you. And that's the way I look at everything. You know, I, in January, the job I was at for the last three years came to an end. They, they didn't have any more work. They, they were, we were working on apartment buildings. And uh, usually that would make me freak out and drink. And, and, oh, my God, I lost another job, just that and the other. I got on the phone and called somebody that I used to work with. And he said, yeah, you can start Monday. And I'll give you a $10 an hour raise. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, like wow. like. I lost that job to get something better. Yeah, it happens. And, yeah, and, and before I, I would have dwelled on it for weeks and not picked up the phone and called anybody and been behind on my bills and, and that might have spiraled me down. But looking at things that happened for you, not to you, has, has just completely changed my life as well for pretty much everything that I do. It's great.
So it seems like a good place to wrap up. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add? Well, you know, I'm, I'm open on my Instagram page as far as if anybody ever has any questions or needs to speak to somebody or they just uh, they want some advice or, you know, anything that has to do with mental illness or, or recovery or addiction. My messaging is completely open and I message everybody back. If I get a message and they ask me, you know, what did you do for recovery? Or I'm having a bad day. Do you have a minute? I always respond to every single message. So if, if you're out there and you feel as if you need somebody to talk to, if you need somebody to answer a question or you need, you just need a friend to hear what, what is going on, I am available on my Instagram page at Tlogin, and it's open to everybody from mental illness and addiction. That's great. Appreciate your work you do. Uh, I, I finally feel as if I'm, uh, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in life. And uh, the best part about it is I don't make money doing this. I don't get sponsors because of doing this. I generally feel as if I have to do this. And there's no other better feeling in the world when you're actually doing something that you're passionate about. Yeah. No, I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Uh, I feel worthy. <laughs> yeah, that's a great word. That is a great word to describe it, worthy. Yeah, I love doing this stuff. So this keeps me sober. And, and thank you for having a podcast for people to come on and share their story. Because without people like you who have podcasts, people like me wouldn't be able to share my story and we wouldn't be able to reach people all over the world. Cause I know podcasts go everywhere. So thank you for broadening our audience to be able to listen to these messages of hope, strength, and courage. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for your words of kindness. I really just want to give back. That's all I really want to do. So I want to figure this is a way of being a service. That's awesome, man. I, I love what you're doing. Thank you so much. Awesome. And for everyone else, like what you heard and saw, please click below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can also find us at www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you can find plenty of resources as well as our approved literature. There's a ton of free articles there available. You can also check us out on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Instagram, and TikTok. So I hope everyone liked what they saw, uh, what they saw and heard today. And that's all we have. So until next time.